Hello, my name is Philip Miraton, and today we are going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. We talk a lot in this show about changing our mindset from a materialistic standpoint to a spiritual one, from the perspective of stuff to the perspective of energy, to spiritual beings having a physical experience from a physical experience having a spiritual experience. When we take this standpoint and view ourselves as spiritual beings, even temporarily, such as during the show, we start taking different attitudes, not only to the normal, such as nature, but the paranormal and what Dean Radin called a couple weeks ago, the supernormal. Now one of the most fascinating talents out there in this area, I think, is mediumship. Folks that communicate with people whose spirits have passed to another plane. I'm happy to have as today's guest, Dr. Ram Weber, who has been called the world's most normal medium. She's an international psychic medium, now in her 18th year of public work, following an original academic training as a sex therapist. Her mediumship was recently acclaimed by the New Jersey Herald as having stunning clarity and accuracy. She's also working on a book that we'll be talking about, Exploring the Challenges of Mediumship. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ram. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, I'm glad that we were able to arrange this because I think that a lot of folks, as you point out in an article on your website, are skeptical about mediumship. Absolutely. But on the other hand, many people, a lot of people are watching shows where that's the topic, such as Long Island Medium, which we'll be talking about. And a lot of people, I think, hope this is true because they want to talk to people that have passed away. But first of all, how does one become a medium? Very interesting. Some people hold very strong points of view, and they believe that either you're born with it, other people believe that you can develop it. The way I look at it is, if we are spirits having a physical experience, that concept and that quality of being spirit on the inside is what makes us all have the capacity to be mediums, because what we're talking about as mediums is the capacity to communicate from our spiritual being to another person's spiritual being. The difference is that we have a body and they don't. So what fascinates me is what happens in real life when we look at babies and we hear all these stories, these anecdotal stories about babies that we'll see, perhaps the grandparents that passed on before they're born. And so we have these stories, I mean, maybe not babies, but let's just say children that are old enough to communicate but are still very young. And the parents will say, wow, you know, they were communicating with grandpa or something like that. And everybody thinks this is kind of neat. And then on the other hand, you have people, uh, sometimes in a hospice situation at the end of their lives, and they'll be reaching out to people that have passed on before them too. So it's interesting that in Western culture, it's very common that we have, you know, 
people at the beginning and the end of their lives who are basically acting in a mediumistic form. They're communicating spirit to spirit with people that have passed on. And then when we have the rest of our life, it's like we're relearning it all over again. Well, I think one of the one of the features of our Western mindset is that we are conditioned in, in this materialistic, robotic, mechanical Absolutely. worldview where things like mediumship are sort of put off to the side as being some kind of fringe endeavor. Mm-hmm. And and as you point out, though, it's sort of like, well, maybe maybe we need to unlearn some of that materialistic conditioning and find what our true essence is and find that we are really spirits underneath it all. Mm-hmm. Now, now, one of the things that interested me is that you've done this all over the world. Is that right? You've you've uh, yeah, I work folks. with people from all over the world, and uh, you know, everybody's got a very different point of view on it, certainly. Um, but we can tell one thing that there are different approaches to mediumship across the world. Some people um, are very, you know, inclusive of it. For example, in the UK, the Spiritualist National Union and their um, the number of spiritualist churches there. I mean, you, you could you could throw a rock, you know, wow. you'd land up at one. It's very very common uh, in the UK, whereas in the United States, for example, it's more spread out. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about, how how it's different around the world. I, I, I would not think that the U.K. was as open as you just mentioned, although on the other hand, you know, the U.K. is interesting because that's where the Society of Psychical Research was born, which, mm-hmm. is, which is, the I think, the first association that ever investigated scientifically psychic events. Right. But it's also the home of folks like Richard Dawkins and mm-hmm. Stephen Hawking, some of the most hardcore materialists out there. Absolutely. And, and so, so what, what, does, what does your international work tell you about how mediumship is accepted is the u.s severe severely opposed is in the middle where does the u.s fit in i think rather than in nationality it might be better to understand in terms of cultural groups for example in my experience uh let's say the first 15 years especially for whatever reason people that had brought up in a catholic tradition the majority of my clients i didn't work to particularly accommodate one particular group versus another or do anything different i just found that amazing and that was true for people both uh, born in the U.S. and overseas. Hmm. And so I got very curious about that. And one of the conclusions I developed was that it might have to do with the fact that in that particular religious tradition, there is a complete acceptance of the afterlife. Yeah. So hmm. I think some of it is what kind of cultural groups you're talking about. And I think also some of it is a question of um, whether or not that person is willing to entertain the idea of a spiritual perspective. I mean, it's the whole Occam's razor thing. Some people, no matter how much evidence you may present in the field of parapsychology, will still never believe it, you know? Yes. And so because my perspective is a bit unique, I come from a scientific background. I've been trained in the scientific method. I fully understand the limits of that. When I work with people, what I'm doing is I'm creating an experience that they can decide for themselves about. And I'm not looking at it anymore from a scientific perspective. I'm, I'm making that a personal, spiritual experience for them. And then, you know, they can decide if they're believers, skeptics, cynics. Most people respond with a certain degree of awe, I think. 
Well, I think that's a, that's a good perspective, and I, I did read your article, uh, and by the way, uh, Rom has an article on her website, I think it's called The Skeptical Median, right? Uh, where, where you really face this question directly, which is that there's a natural tendency to be skeptical about, about medianship. But I think you make some good points uh, that are extremely important. I mean, for example, I was raised in the Catholic uh, religion as well, and it is true that there's this notion that there is an afterlife, but nobody really knows much about it. And it's, you know, it's, except for maybe some of these life after death stories, it really is a big, giant mystery. And, and, mm-hmm. so, and so to rule it out is almost as bad as ruling it in without question. I mean, exactly. And, and so, so I think that that's really, really exciting, and it keeps sort of a mystery to our lives to think that maybe there is something afterward, and there is some, there is some line of communication that maybe we could attribute to a sixth sense. I'd like to know, though, as I think some listeners might, you know, how you moved, how you made the transition. You hmm. you were trained, uh, I guess, I guess as a sex therapist, which which I'm not going to delve into, but but as you said, you were you were uh, raised in the scientific method. How did you make the transition from from a science background to being a medium? Well, um, okay, so let me. Start giving you listeners a little bit more of an understanding of that. I was definitely raised uh, as a child in a family where, you know, the joke was that there are two professions, one's doctor, you know, and one's lawyer, and right. that was it. Right. So it was very much in a sense of you're going to become a white-collar professional. And the field of human sexuality uh, was what I chose, and I chose a social science background. But in order to do that work well, you do need to understand the scientific method and work within its constraints. So for me... I never even considered becoming a psychic or a medium or a spiritualist. It wasn't even in, you know, wasn't even in the life view. Yeah. But I noticed when I was young that I had very strong intuitive capacity. And as a teenager, I began doing some basic experiments with psychometry, which is the ability to dis- discern facts and figures from just holding on to a piece of, say, jewelry or something like that, and you get vibrations whatnot. And I thought, that's great. That's like in a very much experimental. Um, and I did have a strong interest in parapsychology, which of course is the formal study of it. I had I had really done enough of that in my own training. So it came as a great surprise to me. I was interested in, I would say, um, defining and clarifying whatever abilities I had. I didn't know what they were. And it seemed like I had a greater than usual sense of intuition. So the first thing I started with was like what anybody might do. I tried to read these tarot cards, right? Right. And they were so confusing to me. Hmm. They, they, would, they would take away my capacity to see within my mind's eye rather than uh, add to it. So I was a little bit lost for a while, and a friend suggested, well, why don't you try runes? And runes are the Scandinavian ancient alphabet imprinted on stones, and they're very abstract. And they just look like a bunch of hash marks. For whatever reason, because of that abstractness, maybe the way my mind works, it seemed that this was the first key into developing my clairvoyance because my ability to see within my mind's eye is dependent on uh, stepping away from the rational mind. So it's getting in touch with the inner senses of clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, and so forth. And as a result, I developed that ability first. Hmm. During one of those sessions, 
I sense the presence of another person in the room in a spiritual form and attempted to see if I could have a connection there. And that happened. Wow. And the uh, messages came across in my mind's eye and my mind's ear. And they were confirmed immediately. And the thing was, is that it was such a different experience than the way it's often portrayed on television. You know, people talk about hand-holding, the seance, the spookiness, the paranormal, and everything like that. And this was nothing of the sort. This felt like being a midwife between two people that loved each other, one who happened to have a body and one that did not. Mm. And it was a beautiful, uplifting, clear, awe-inspiring experience. I fell in love with it right away. Wow. So what what is the... Okay, so when you have this experience of being in the presence of spirit, mm-hmm. what... How can you explain that? I mean, what is it? Is it... does What's, what's the sensation? That's interesting. Um, what I can compare it to now, having done some investigations into the paranormal arena as a way of stretching myself, I can say that it is very close to feeling when there is ungrounded electricity or inappropriate ionization in a residential facility. Hmm. So there is almost a sense of air that is similar to if somebody was up on a mountaintop and they had, you know, an altitude difference. Right. A quality of that, perhaps. A quality of errant electricity. A quality of presence. And again, that quality of something's a little different in the air. Something's a little brighter, something's finer. We talk about the higher vibration. Right. And I'm open to that, but I realize that if you're coming from a skeptical perspective, you know, we want the proof of that. Right. But what I'm talking about is a phenomenological experience. And quite often, when I'm working as a medium, there is no sense of that whatsoever. It is simply my mind picking up on information without having that sense of a spirit being in the room hmm. at all. And I'd say that's at least 50 or 60% of the time. So tell us about this means of communication. When you're doing one of your um, readings, mm-hmm. what, what do you do? I mean, and, and what do you hear or sense in your mind's sure. eye? Well, when I think about the channels of perception, as somebody who works on an intuitive basis, I'm looking to receive through channels that parallel my everyday senses. So rather than external seeing, it's usually internal seeing. External hearing, often internal seeing. It's not limited to that, though. Sometimes there's an internal sense of touch or motion or sudden knowledge. That would be like clairsentience and claircognizance. Sometimes you have an internal sense of smell that's clear olfaction, and sometimes an internal sense of taste, which is clear gustation. So you have all these parallel internal senses, and that's by and large what I'm picking up on. I do see and hear externally from time to time, but it's less common. And so basically what I'm doing is I'm putting myself into a very receptive state of mind that feels just like if you were an artist that was engaging in painting or a musician and you're doing a jam, and you get lost in it. It's that sense of flow when you don't know how long time has passed. That's the state of mind mediums are in, too. And when we make the intention to connect with spirit there, it's really having a sense of putting our independent thoughts on hold and letting thoughts kind of pop in. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with medium Dr. Rom Weber about her 
personal experiences and growth from being a sex therapist to becoming a down-to-earth real medium and I'd like to continue exploring this Ron because you know the the show Long Island Medium which I, I assume you've seen that show yes and now do you know her I knew of her we haven't met her personally okay and you know shows like that I think have I don't know whether they've expanded the inship the the interest in mediumship or whether they're touching a nerve hmm. but but first of all what do you think of that show do you is that is that the kind of thing you you do or is there something different well one thing that we uh we'll talk about in the medium community of people that work as professional mediums is the one big difference between working as a professional medium and what you'll see on that particular television show is that we don't do this thing called ambush medium we're not here to walk into supermarkets and suddenly tell people oh i see your father yeah. you know i see your daughter yeah. first of all it's completely non-consensual it's right. not professional right. however that might be the kind of thing that sells commercial airtime right so right. We have to make that jump between what's being shown on TV versus how it works in real life. Another thing to pay attention to is that in the course of a mediumship session, I tend to work with my clients on a 60-minute basis. And there's going to be high and low points during that time, times when the information is going uh, verbosely and smoothly and one point after the other. And then there's sometimes that are a little bit of a lull, and that's normal. And what we're getting on television is we're getting a highly edited version of the times that it's very intense as well. Right. So there's that quality. What I do like about that particular show is this. In my experience as a medium, I've met people with disability from all walks of life. I've met information technology professionals and CFOs who have the ability to do mediumship. I've met doctors. I've met attorneys. I've met stay-at-home parents. I've met people in the trades. I've even met a go-go dancer once, right? So I know that mediumship is a capacity, it's a human capacity, and where a medium works is going to affect people that, you know, they might share some common ground with. So the people that are watching the Long Island Medium are going to be able to understand that particular medium's style, and it's going to, you know, hit home for them. Right. Whereas with me, look, I recognize I come from an academic background. I might be a little drier. I might be more down-to-earth than other people are. So there's a difference, and so there's going to be kind of a medium to address each audience or each person, and I think that's the beauty of it. Yes, it's, yeah, that, I think that it's it's an interesting show. One of one of the uh, observations I would make about the show that I think can be uh, on, on the critical side is that they tend to run a standard format. There's There's a style where the message from the past loved one is something like they want they want you to know that they're doing well and that they're happy and don't worry about them and there seems to be this constant you know the same message and um, and i and i really think it's the detail that that convinces people because you know from the skeptical side of things i think as i said earlier a lot of people probably would want this to be true there mm. there there it's it's sort of like uh, that old saying uh, for, i think it was nietzsche who said something like uh if god didn't exist then then man would have to invent one or invent him uh, uh-huh. it's it's something where there's a need for it so so realizing that you appreciate the skeptical side of this or the skeptics in the room 
right what what are what are some of the 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 things that have convinced you that what you do is real well my knee-jerk response to that is 18 years of repetition yeah okay that's yeah. that's part of it yes what moves me i think is as mediums, we are trained to do a process called give as we get. That means that when we pick up on information, we are trained to not embellish it and not run away with it. And so, for example, when we're working, the experience of doing accurate mediumistic work is the experience of having a thought or sensation pop into your head or body and relaying that in plain English as clearly and briefly as possible. If you have to work at that information, in other words, if you're trying to make sense of it, that's no longer really mediumship. That's often, you know, putting a, a spin on it, if you will. Right. Because the natural, logical way of working, of course, is that if something comes into our heads, we want to make sense of it. And as mediums, what we're trying to do is to pass on information that may make no sense for us whatsoever. So let me give you an example. The, sometimes the messages that seem the stupidest to us, to be quite frank, or the most unworthy can be the most important. And it's so hard to let go of that natural desire to make everything rational. So, for example, when I was early in my practice, I had a wonderful mother and daughter come in. And what I did not know at the time when they came in is that they had lost, uh, obviously, her son and her brother. Mm. And they came in and um, didn't know really what to expect. And I told them that I was sensing a young male in spirit, and I gave them information that was pretty basic and then all of a sudden in my mind's eye I see a bag of candy let's just call it Skittles for now that wasn't the particular name of it but you know a very specific name brand kind of candy and I thought to myself oh great you know what am I going to do I'm going to give these people the name of a bag of candy that's ridiculous and so I said very carefully you know I'm feeling the presence of a male here he feels a certain degree of age he feels like he you know, passed on in such and such a way. And what I need to let you know is that he's showing me this bag of Skittles. And their jaws dropped, and yeah. they began to cry. Yeah. And I asked them, you know, why is this important? And they said, that was the name of his band. Wow. That's and that kind of experience of that kind of specificity is the fingerprint that makes the experience of mediumship just amazing to me. I mean, I you know, I, I'm... I'm the conduit here, but right. I'm watching it happen too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I I think that is very. I think that's very persuasive. I think that's. I think that's really good. And it it's it's interesting as you were talking about that. It, it is the overlap between between many of these uh, paranormal talents. It, it it comes across. I mean, what it sounds a little bit like synchronicity, uh, which I also think is related to this whole area i mean because you know synchronicity these rare coincidences where i mean i i had one where it's in my book where i talk about how i was reading a book uh and i didn't know this this word called it was it was ukasa ukasa or something some french word i'm sorry a russian word meaning directive ukasa and so i was going to work the next day going up the elevator and the word of the day was ukasa and I thought, well, that's strange, you know. I mean, how, wow. what, what, what kind of connection is that? And and so, but the connection that you're drawing between, or that you drew with with the Skittles and the band, it's so similar. I mean, I I I look at synchronicity events mm -hmm. as if 
there is a script, a giant script that is being written, and and the and the script has sort of a coherence about it, and so it's all flowing from this one sort of text, one mm-hmm. story, and so this medium reading that you were just doing with or that you did with this uh, this family, you know, it sounds like the same thing. It sounds like there is this connection that you keyed into that that shows that there is some kind of symmetry between the living and the dead or something or, uh, yeah. some, or something something like that i mean it is pretty amazing i take it that you didn't immediately go from being a sex therapist to a medium i mean was there some was it was there something in you that says you know i've i've, I've shown these skills i i'm getting these connections of spirit i need to start helping people i mean what was the what was the conversion there? How did it happen? It actually happened before I got my PhD. Mm. I had had that experience, and I, I said, well, I, I love this, and I'm going to be open to it. And the first natural thing I did was I you know, got in touch with like, all of my family and friends, and, and they became my guinea pigs, right? <laughs> I see, yeah. So, so I wore out all of them, and at a certain point yeah. they said, hey, Rom, you know, maybe you knew this about me. Maybe you overheard this in conversation. I said, you're completely right. Let's give it a further test. Yeah. And I put an ad in a local paper, and I said, if you're willing to have a cup of coffee with me and give me very constructive feedback, I'd like to see where this goes. And I had a break during graduate school, and I worked for several months um, maintaining this feedback. So I basically brought, you know, that that scientific attitude into a place when I couldn't find other mediums at the time. I didn't even know they existed, really. It was just about the time that, um, you know, we were starting to get the television shows. It was the mid-90s, and... Uh, I was in California, and it was interesting because I could find people that called themselves psychics, but I had a hard time finding another medium. So anyway, I self-trained in the beginning, and when I developed a certain degree of accuracy, that's when I hung the shingle out. And so for a while, I was taking clients both in sexology and in mediumship, like in the same office, mm-hmm. but separately, right? So the, the two never met. Yeah, that's And funny. that's how I got the original start there. Yeah, that, that's, that's funny. Well, that's, you know, I don't know. I guess variety is a spice of life, but uh, you know, having having multiple skills, it's it's really uh, an interesting way to get into it. I I have I really think though that for everybody, there is probably some connection, some reading you can give that would convince them. I mean, I know that you do this over the phone and over Skype as well. Is that right? Yes. So so is this is this a skill that you could just sort of uh, intentionally lapse into? Can you like like, is it is it at will or do you have to be in a certain state of mind? My experience is that about ninety five percent of the time I have to intentionally go into a particular state of mind, and I do that by relaxing as much as I can, maybe having a workout, doing a meditation practice, and there is a way in which mediums are trained, say in a public environment, to sort of turn on very, very quickly. You know, we want to be able to just switch our brain from what we call the spiritual mindset and the ego mindset. When we talk about ego mindset, we're talking about our everyday beta brainwave dominant way of thinking. When we're talking about the spiritual mindset, we're either talking about the alpha dominant brainwave mindset, or now they're suggesting perhaps that gamma dominant mindset for mediumship, and also um, like the tradition of uh, meditation through like to say the Buddhist tradition, same result. So, yes, 95% of the time, definitely have to work at transitioning into that place. However, 
uh, when I'm, say, finishing up a radio show with, say, another medium or if I'm meeting another friend who happens to be a medium for dinner, uh, it'll lapse on just, you know, by itself. You yes. know, that can happen. Yes. Well, you point out something in, in one of your articles about how open-mindedness to this is so important. And why don't you say a couple of things about that? Because, you know, I... I strongly believe that open-mindedness begins everything in this area. Mm-hmm. Not, and it almost begins everything in science as well. Unless you're open to something new, I don't know how it could possibly help uh, happen. But why don't, you, why don't you talk about how open-mindedness plays into the success of a median? Wow. Okay. Well, I think one of the points to uh, address there is that if you're looking to, say, being a medium or a client of a medium, one thing is that you want to make sure you get as much information as possible. And when I teach, one of the factors that I bring in is the idea of the internal critic. So if I teach people to focus on something to ascertain particular information, they're going to get two kinds of information back. They're going to get information that completely makes sense to them from the get-go, and there's going to be information that they get that feels fuzzy. And over a period of time, you learn to amplify that fuzzy sense so that it comes across just like your regular thought patterns, but you can still tell the difference. So part of it is really this experience of getting to know how your own brain works. You might call it your brain, you might call it your mind. One of the things I'd also like to bring up is this. I know there's a lot of people that might come from a skeptical or cynical point of view, and they come in with very much a prove-it attitude. Right. And one of the problems that mediumship has inherent with it is this. Mediums can basically function on the same high level of information from reading to reading, just as anybody would have their good days or their great days and their bad days. But what does seem to be difficult from a scientific point of view is for a medium to generate the exact same information over and over again. So the repeatability factor is key here, uh, which is why I leave it up to the parapsychologist to do the research here. I see. I see. Well, what do you, what do you think about... Uh, the scientific acceptance of mediumship. Do you, it seems as if that does does not matter to you. Or no, is, it doesn't because honestly, um, I'm a sexual scientist and that's where I've done my research and my education. As a medium, I'm somebody who's actually uh, doing the work in terms of making experience. So I'm not really looking at mediumship from the point of view of a scientist. I'm just bringing some of the scientific skills into it. And because of that, I'm very much a live-and-let-live kind of person. So what I want to do is I want to provide an experience for people and then let them judge for themselves what to make of that. And if they judge that to be a life-changing experience, as it often can be, well, let that be their choice. And if they say it's hogwash, let that be their choice too. Right. You know? Right, right. Well, I think think that's that's a really healthy attitude. It's not the attitude that... A lot of people would have, but it's it's. I mean, we're living in a uh, world right now where we have a lot. Of, we have so many things that science cannot explain, and and to reject things like mediumship because there's not a scientific theory right now does hardly means it doesn't exist. Uh, it's it's sort of like. Uh, trying to prove somebody that they really haven't had a life after death, or they really didn't have a clairvoyance experience, or they really didn't have a synchronistical experience. It's never going to happen because y- you can't overcome that deep personal experience. This is right. Philip Miriton. This is Conversations. 
Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Dr. Ram Weber about mediumship. And one of the things that I want to I want to try to draw a connection here if we can, if one exists, and that is you you speak a lot about intuition and empathy. You 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 indicate that you have a strong sense of empathy. And and I you know the the topic of intuition comes up a lot in this show not only from the spiritual side of of things but also from the scientific mm-hmm. side of things and do you think there's a relationship that's where I'm going with this a relationship between empathy or intuition and 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 medium abilities absolutely and i can address that when we talk about intuition i put intuition and psychic work up side by side, and they're different. And the way I perceive them is thus. We have abilities as human beings to perceive in non-logical ways. If somebody is, say, for example, an atheist agnostic, a great cynic, they might take these capacities and attribute them to biological origins, the subconscious mind, electrical brainwave patterns, so on and so forth. When a person gets into an altered state, they have a greater degree of perception. Somebody who labels these abilities psychic is using the word psyche, which means soul or spirit, and is taking the exact same abilities and they're attributing them to the idea of having a soul or spirit. So when I teach, for example, I'm teaching the exact same skill set, but the way the person is going to make sense of that skill set is going to depend what religious, spiritual, atheist, agnostic belief system they're coming from, right? Right. So that's the first part. So when we talk about intuition, we're talking about the perception of non-rational thought by means that, as you say, science doesn't quite know how to explain just yet, and whether that's by certain physical capacities that we haven't been able to nail down yet, or whether that's because of the spiritual and uh, soul-based capacities. You know, it really depends where you're coming from with that. But when we talk about those qualities of perception, and we talk about empathy, one of the things we talk about empathy is really trying to understand what somebody else is, you know, where they're coming from, you know, having a sense of... Compassion is experienced to a very different life experience. And as a medium, one of the ways that empathy is developed is that just about every single time you're coming into contact with somebody in spirit trying to convey their perceptions and life experience to you, which may have nothing to do with how you've experienced life. They may have come from a different socioeconomic class. They may have come from a different religious community. They may have come from ability to be more or less articulate, to struggle with different health problems, to be male or female, etc., etc. So as a medium, we are trained to not get our personal mindset in the way of conveying this information because the more that we kind of step out of our personal minds, the more accurately we then work. As a result of doing that repetitively, we are then able to empathize with other human beings in a greater manner. Yes, I really think that that is that there is a connection between so many of these emotions and and inner skills, uh, the sixth sense. And it's funny because some of them, such as imagination, intuition, gut instinct are scientifically valid but when you move to things like mediumship clairvoyance telepathy all of a sudden it's off the charts but but there is but but there is this this connection that i think leads to you know i think it leads to a broader richer understanding 
of the world we live in. Now, I like to draw sort of bigger conclusions from these things because I happen to think that uh, this world that today we call the paranormal, some people correct me uh, and say it's really the normal that we don't understand, mm. which, which I think is probably a, a, a more positive way to put it. I, I really think all of these sort of areas that are today put under the title of paranormal are telling us that we live in a much richer, uh, more enchanting type of world. And I'm, I'm wondering whether your work as a medium has taught you something about the, the, the world we live in, about the nature of, of life, for example. Sure. I think one of the things that it's brought out is the capacity of love to exist as an energy force. Hmm beyond the grave. Well, that is the predominant feeling people will experience during a mediumship session. The idea of uplifting, reunion, love, uh, higher, finer vibration, whatnot. It's that sense of that person persisting in positive regard for the people that have survived them and often the persistence of that intelligence which then leads to more specific messages than, you know, here's grandma with gray hair and a rolling right. pin, which we joke around and call Claire Vagueness. <laughs> you know, we don't want any of that. Yeah, Come on. Claire Vagueness, good. Claire Vagueness, right. So that's, that's part of it, too. Yeah. And then the other part of it for me, you know, is to remain open to realize that even as mediums, we are trained with certain techniques and disciplines which have evolved since say modern spiritualism has begun as, as a movement uh, about 150 years ago. So there's traditions even with the mediumistic training. But even now, you know, we want to keep pushing those boundaries. Like, for example, in my work, it, we're trained as mediums to have kind of an inner dialogue with the loved one who's passed on. But what we're finding is that when the client initiates the question, things can get a lot hairier. And as somebody with a scientific background, one of the things I want to find out is why. Why should it be any different if it goes in the reverse direction as compared to, say, when we're just listening to the information that we're getting from the spiritual world? Right. So I like challenging my own field with these questions, and I feel fortunate that among my peer group, I belong to a movement where we do want those answers, and we do support parapsychological research, and we do invite skepticism. And that's very exciting. We do not want knee-jerk dogma. Well, I think that's I think that's really positive and, and and necessary because there's nothing wrong, in my view, with the scientific method. I mean, it's hard. It's really the assumptions. We we probably won't have time to get into it here, but it's really the assumptions that one undertakes before they carry out the scientific method that creates the problems. I mean, for example, I personally have a problem with, with, with many scientists assuming that we live in a mechanical, materialistic world, and then they undertake the scientific method. I started off this show by saying, well, if you start off with a spiritualistic standpoint, if you view ourselves as being spiritual beings having a physical experience, and then look at things like mediumship, all of a sudden we start explaining things like this more, exactly. and we start, and, and it's no longer strange. It it's it becomes incorporated into a broader mindset. Now, now the it's 
I, I want to talk about the, a question that I always have with the after with the life after death folks and that is is this one-to-one -one correlation between the the person that before they passed away and the spirit after they passed away and it's a very similar issue with reincarnation because reincarnation says that you know uh, a person such as the Dalai Lama could be reincarnated and come back as the next Dalai Lama uh, or if you or if you have bad karma you come back as a frog or whatever the whatever the <laughs> whatever the yeah. the, the right. crude interpretation of it is but the point is is that, is that there's this one-to-one -one correlation where I always think it's easier envisioning that a person's spirit and and I don't mean and by that I don't mean anything really religious I mean what they were as a person the their their human spirit right that it it gets thrown back into the ocean of spirit and gets mixed again mm -hmm. but your experiences are are to me showing that there is perhaps a correlation that after death that this spirit this child that passed away still exists as a spiritual uh entity in and of itself mm. if, if if you follow what I'm trying to say here I mean the point is, is this so do you think that there is this one-to-one -one correlation that that we we could identify the the same individual after they die in a spiritual form I would say absolutely yeah and the reason I would say this is that the quality of information that can get through during a high-quality, evidential, mediumistic consultation almost defies the idea that we just go back into the Borg, if you will. Right. You know, that's yeah. the thing. And so we know from our scientific point of view that energy never dies. What seems to be the case is that not only does the energy never die, but there seems to be the continuity of intelligence and self-awareness. Yes. Now, well, how long that lasts, I don't know. Yes. Because... In my experience, I've had people that have passed on many, many years before my client comes through, and I've also had a situation in which, after a particularly good session, I said, um, how long has your loved one been gone when we closed the session? And they said, we buried him yesterday. Wow. So yeah. I do see that can be. And you know, just to kind of add-on as a possibility, a lot of people ask about this idea of reincarnation, right? Well, how is it possible that a person gets reincarnated and then they're still able to communicate once they have to be in some other form. And I've come to the belief that it's more, if you can imagine, sort of like an octopus. Right. I feel like there's a central connection that we all have. And what my understanding has evolved to is that maybe it's not, much, not so much a linear reincarnation, because whenever we start looking at spirit and quantum mechanics, you know, time often goes out the window. Right. So we're not looking at the same perception of time. And I certainly know when I'm in my best sessions, there's such a sense of an eagle's eye point of view that has a similar ability to look at future potential as it does to past defined experience. And so when we're looking at that time factor and we're looking at the qualities of the potential for afterlife continuity, I think the idea of parallel lives may hold more promise than the idea of reincarnated linear lives. Mm. That's interesting. Well, I, I mentioned when when I framed that comment and question I started with the scientific method and then I moved into the one-to-one -one correlation because in 
in the modern, in the spiritual age, which will come at some point in time, I don't know when, and but that by that I mean an age where spirit or consciousness is really considered scientifically primary, that we still will be a, applying the scientific method, and, and one way to do it is to address this question about the parallel lives or the continuity because things like what you do conv- are convincing me that there is a correlation. Mm-hmm. That, that, that as you point out, or as you observe, that the spirit of a deceased person doesn't just uh, get thrown back into the ocean of spirit, that at least for a time they remain uh, so, sort of embodied, an embodied spirit. Yes, because yes, how, el- how else can you possibly communicate with with somebody uh, or get messages from this person? Well, I unless... think one of the reasonable questions that comes up uh, among skeptics in particular is, isn't it just mind reading, right? Right. And while, again, I'm not trying to prove anything, one thing that raises the questions in my mind about that is, during the course of an hour session, my client will be able to say yes or no to information that I present. And in the sessions that often bring them the most joy, they're saying a yes a whole bunch of the time, right? They're making sense of it. They're understanding just about everything that they get. However, with about 5% of those uh, readings, there will be information that does not make sense. No, I don't recognize that name. No, I do not understand this event, et cetera, et cetera. And what they'll do is they'll go home after the session and they'll ask a loved one, a family member, or maybe they'll actually do some research on the Internet. And what they'll find is, is that, that information is accurate, but they had no way of knowing ahead of time. And yes. that's some of the most fascinating information that comes through to me, because where did that come from? It's not in the mental bank of my client. Yeah, and for someone who who says, well, it's just mind reading, well, that doesn't exactly take them off the hook of, of something that science doesn't accept either. I mean, right. I mean, there isn't, there isn't, there is a, speaking of continuities, I think there's a continuity between telepathy and mediumship, if you really mm-hmm. want to start going there. This, this is, <laughs> this is Philip Merton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're speaking with Dr. Ram Weber, a down-to-earth medium out of New York, and we're talking about how she uh, has been trained in this field, how she's moved from being a sexologist to a medium, and really what events show us that there is truth to this field. Now, before we talk about your your, your upcoming book, Ram, there's probably a lot of people who who are just wondering in the curiosity side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, what are what are some other uh, readings that you've had with details that that really that really uh, struck you or that were are, are noteworthy. I know you mentioned the band that the band and and Skittles, but what what's another one or two that that were particularly striking that you could share with us? Well, some of the ones that are really interesting include the time in which I was the messenger rather than hmm. the recipient of the message. And it happened not too long ago. I was uh, co-hosting a radio show. We actually had this from being the guest of uh, my friend Susan, who was uh, formerly called Two Mediums at Large, now called The Medium at Large. And after the show was over, we remained on the line with each other, and we took that opportunity to trade sessions because 
working with the public is one thing, but working with somebody else who's a trained professional medium, of course, presents new challenges. So we take these opportunities. And she said, Ram, I'm picking up on somebody here, and can you take this last name? We'll just call it, like, Jones, you know. And I said, yeah. It was a more specific last name. I said, yeah, I, I understand that name. And that last name corresponded to my dear friend's the departed mother. Mm. And she gave a little bit more information, and she said, can you understand, you know, this other name, Emily? And it was the first name of my friend's mother. Mm. Yeah. At that point, it just, you know, yeah. went, went wild with information. Yes. And my friend was 2,000 miles away at the time and hadn't been listening to the show. And all that I could do was, you know, take notes fast and furious. And during this informational session, Susan brought to this idea that, you know, there seems to be some kind of concern about the manner of passing and was somebody doing the right thing and so forth. And she gave me all these details and I took them down and thought, wow, that's really exciting. I mean, every once in a while I'll get a first name and a last name, but that's, that's uncommon, right? Yes. So I relay this information back, and my friend says, that's the information I've been like waiting to hear for you know, the last 10 years. Yes. And so not only do I have the experience of giving the information, but I have, the, have had the experience of being the messenger for information which did not belong to me as well. Yes. Yeah, and when, when you tell stories like that, and I think when, when I hear accounts that are persuasive, it really, it really tells me that the way to approach this is with an open mind, is to be open to it, because, because you never know what you're going to see around the corner if you don't mm. keep yourself open to the possibility that there's truth in what many folks in the scientific community would call simply unbelievable coincidences or something i mean or 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 fraud or or uh, make right. believe you right. know or make believe so and it really almost divides into two kind of people the people that are open the people that are close to it but right. i i'm happy that there are enough people that are opened open to it that it allows you and others to really perform a I think positive um, service which is trying to connect folks with each other um, right. now you you have a book I don't know if it's done or you I think you mentioned that it's being reviewed what is what is your new book going to be about what I'm looking at is to combine two things one is to talk about the autobiographical point of view because I think that I belong to a group of people who do have a scientific and academic background, like, you know, the Brian Weisses of the world and right. the uh, Judith Orloffs and so forth, who've really been gifted with both experiences so that they are able to communicate about these things in a, in a very highly intelligent manner without drawing unneeded conclusions. You know, they just say, Here, here's my experience, I'm sharing it with you, and this is how I think it can benefit. And so when we look at people that have had this, um, the first thing that I want to do is I want to share my experience because when I was young, Certainly, the capacity for doing any sort of work like this was something that belonged to somebody else. Right. And so, for me, one of the things to convey is, this is how I learned it. I did have the sensitivity as a child, but, you know, you don't need your grandmother to have the ability. You don't need to have been sensitive at three years old. You don't need to have a near-fatal car crash to have this experience. You don't need to have been abused and all these other ridiculous stereotypes that people have, because that's what people are expecting. Right. It's got to be other. 
And the best thing that people can do is begin to look for that subtle sensitivity within themselves and then learn how to amplify it. So in the book, the first thing that I'm talking about is this process of not othering and sharing my experience and how I did come from, you know, that very stereotypical, you know, doctor, lawyer, teacher kind of attitude going into something else. I'm not going to say that my family wasn't open. I just want to say that they would not think of it as something more than hobbyist. Right. Right. With that said, another part of the book then becomes how-to. So what are the nitty-gritty experiences needed to actually tune in like this? And can you do this if you're the kind of person that can't sit still? Or can you do this if you're the kind of person that comes from a scientific background? Or does the client need to speak the same language? And all of these types of issues uh, so that people can really help themselves. Because I really feel the best experiments here are done within ourselves. That's what provides the validation. It's not just, you know, looking at an experience that somebody else is giving you and saying, oh, well, you know, I'm going to make X, Y, Z of that. It's the actual learning by doing. Yeah, and each of us carries around a certain amount of skepticism. I mean, and I think that if it convinces the person who is having the reading, and that that's all that matters when you think about it. I think that's all that would matter because I'm, I'm naturally a skeptical person Right. But I, but when all, the, but when all the doubt is put aside, the, uh, or when the skepticism is overcome, I think it strengthens a belief, and, and I think that's that's the really the hallmark of science. Science is exactly. supposed to be ruling out all these things that don't have a factual or evidentiary basis, and and it's like that old saying when when you eliminate. Uh, I think it was yes, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, when you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however strange, is the truth. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that really, that really carries the day. So why don't, you, why don't you tell folks a little bit about how to get in touch with you if they want to learn more about uh, what you're up to and maybe even schedule a reading. I'd be glad to. Thank you. All right. Well, I have a website at communicationsinspirit.com, but it can also be accessed with my name, drromweber.com. I have a Facebook page at Dr. Rom Weber Spiritual Medium. That's R-O-M like Mary and Weber with one B. So that's on Facebook. If you'd like to give me a ring, my number for my New York office is 510-496-3496. It's 510-496-3496, and I have gmail address at drromweber at gmail.com if you'd like to drop me a line well that's well that's great and i hope that everybody uh understands here that this i believe is another sign of us moving into a new spiritual age where things like mediumship and uh, parapsychology are not viewed as strange but they're viewed as part of the fabric to our world now, next week's show, I'm happy to say that we'll have as a guest best-selling author Jim Baggett, author of the new book, Farewell to Reality, How Modern Physics Has Betrayed the Search for Scientific Truth. Rob, it's been great talking to you. I wish you a lot of luck. Uh, I think you're on to something, and I'm sure a lot of people will be following up to perhaps find out how you could connect them with a past loved one. This is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. 
You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 